Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to the New Books Network podcast on how to be wrong. I'm John Traphagen, your host, and with me today is Stephen Dick, an astronomer, author, and historian of science, perhaps most noted for his work in the field of astrobiology. Steve served as the chief historian at NASA from 2003 to 2009 and the Bloomberg NASA Library of Congress Chair in Astrobiology from 2013 to 2014. Before that, he was an astronomer and historian of science at the United States Naval Observatory in Washington, D.C. from 1979 to 2003, uh, which, as you think about it, is really an interesting combination. I don't know how many astronomer historians there are out there. Um, Steve is the author of numerous books and articles, a very prolific author, including uh, his recent work, Space, Time, and Aliens, Collected Works on Cosmos and Culture, which was published by Springer in 2020. Steve, many thanks for joining me today on How to Be Wrong. Thanks, John. I'm glad, glad to be here. Great. I think we'll have a fun conversation. I'm looking really forward to it. Um, so, You've had an intriguing intellectual path. I, I, you know, looked over some of your background, and of course, we've talked about different things over the years at conferences. And, um, but it, uh, a, a beginning in graduate school, um, you developed an interest in the extraterrestrial life debate, which, as you note, was uh, something of a taboo subject at one time in academia. In fact, that's, I think, one of the more interesting things that's happened in the last thirty years is that. Increasingly, people aren't giggling anymore when you talk about you have an interest in the possibility of extraterrestrial life. And so I, I wonder if you could, you know, tell our audience a bit about how you got from being a subversive graduate student to the chief historian at NASA. Sure. Uh, it's a kind of a fun story. Uh, let me start with by explaining the uh, subversive graduate student part. Uh, I was at Indiana University as an undergraduate in astrophysics. And um, I always wondered, um, you know, how we develop the ideas that we have now. And uh, luckily, um, not too far away, just a few blocks away on the IU campus was the Department of History and Philosophy of Science, one of the very few uh, departments like that in in the country. So I decided in graduate school to go into uh, History and Philosophy of Science. And um, I was casting around for a subject to do as a dissertation. And as an undergraduate, we had read, um, this is the late uh, 60s, we had le- uh, read um, Shklovsky and Sagan's book on intelligent life in the universe, which uh, became, you know, for the next generation or, or so, the 
sort of the Bible of the whole search for extraterrestrial life um, uh, discipline. So uh, in searching around for a subject to, to write a, you know, a historical dissertation on, I came up with the idea of, uh, well, what, what's the whole history, uh, especially the deep history of this whole debate? So I proposed uh, to do that um, as a dissertation subject and was immediately told that, well, there are two problems with that in a history of science department. First of all, it's not science. And secondly, it has no history worth writing about. <laughs> so so uh, what I did was um, uh, decided to switch advisors and, and go down the hall to a professor who was actually a, a medievalist and who knew that there was a medieval, what they call the plurality of worlds tradition. In fact, it goes back to the ancient Greeks, Aristotle and, and all of that. And so um, uh, he was happy to, to take me on and um, uh, I did that uh, dissertation on the history of the debate from uh, going back from the ancient Greeks and only got as far as the middle of the 18th century after four years. So, <laughs> so uh, I, I ended there, but uh, it turns out to have a, a fascinating uh, history. And um, I, uh, uh, I, I think it was the, actually the first dissertation in that department to be published. Um, so um, I had no regrets, and I always use this story to tell graduate students, never listen to your advisor, <laughs> especially if you think you have a good idea. Well, you know, it's interesting. Uh, I, I honestly can't tell you how many times I've heard a version of this story. I started with Advisor X, and either Advisor X just couldn't figure out what I was doing, or Advisor X was an asshole, which often happens too. Um, and then I moved on to something else. And something else can be new advisor or completely different graduate school, which is what I wound up doing. I left my PhD and then took a few years off and then went back. Um, my son actually did the same thing. It's just that story is so common in graduate school. And it's I think it's really an example of, of how we, we often get tripped up in the process of trying to do something we want to do, and we have to go back and regroup. Um, That's right. And uh, as I say, I have no regrets because it turns out that extraterrestrial life debate, you know, as I say, only got to the middle of the 18th century. Um, and um, uh, there are just so many questions that it raises in all kinds of different disciplines when you get into the more modern history, uh, you know, whether it's philosophy or, or science or theology. And so um, uh, all through my career, even though I wasn't doing astrobiology the, the full time. I always had that in the background and would go to the meetings and so on. And um, so that's a story uh, of perseverance. So how I, how I got uh, to, to NASA was not by a straight line uh, because um, it was difficult back in those days in the 70s to, to get jobs. And uh, the first job I had was actually at a, at a publisher um, uh, who was publishing a new uh, encyclopedia and I worked as a science editor. Um, uh, and then there was a job that I worked with, with a mad scientist out in Princeton, New Jersey, who uh, <laughs> had, a, had his own fusion energy scheme. He was actually a student of a Nobel Prize winner who's a well-known uh, physicist. Um, and, and he had, as a, I wasn't working on fusion energy, he had as a side project um, uh, a journal they called Adventures in Experimental Physics, uh, where you would talk to people who had made great discoveries and find out their stories. Uh, and so uh, we did that for a while. 
um, until that uh, company went bankrupt. And then I ended up at the Naval Observatory, as you mentioned, in Washington, D.C. So I went from New Jersey to uh, Washington and was actually hired there as, a, as an astronomer based on my uh, on my bachelor's degree. So you'll see throughout my career, I oscillated back and forth between astronomy and history. Um, and the thing about the Naval Observatory is, you know, I did some good astronomy there, but also um, it was the oldest, it is the oldest continuously operating scientific institution in the country going back to 1830. And so it was also an opportunity to write uh, the history of that institution because it's the National Observatory for the United States, the original National Observatory, just like Greenwich uh, Observatory and Paris Observatory. So I was able, while I was there doing astronomy, to walk down the hall to one of the best astronomy libraries in the country and write the history of, of the Naval Observatory. So did you do that like in your spare time? Uh, pretty much. Uh, you, know, you're, you, you have your duties there and... Uh, and I did uh, most of my writing, you know, take the books home from the library and did most of my writing uh, at home. And uh, at the same time, uh, I was still having my interest in uh, astrobiology. So I'd be going to various uh, astrobiology meet meetings, um, you know, American Astronomical Society and, and uh, some of the other uh, meetings that were held on, on astrobiology. And that uh, put me in good stead when a position opened at NASA for the NASA chief historian in 2003, because I had been working uh, on various things with the NASA astrobiology uh, program. And so I was hired as a NASA chief historian in 2003. So I'm just curious, you know, by 2003, we know there are lots of exoplanets. Um, would they, do you think they would have hired you with that interest, say in 1983 for that job? Good question. Uh, well, in 1983, I was uh, still in my early years at the Naval Observatory, so I didn't have much of a track record. Uh, but I see what you mean. If, uh, yeah, um, it's it's just very difficult to say. Uh, as you say, by 2003, uh, you know there were probably a, a few dozen exoplanets known by then. Uh, the first one being discovered in uh, 1995, uh, at least around a sun-like star. And, of course, now we know there are thousands. And, and in fact, uh, you know, they're around uh, planets around around virtually uh, every star. So um, I don't know. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's just it occurred to me that, you know, this is one of the things that's changed. And, and from when you were in graduate school, when someone would say, well, there's nothing to talk about there, which, of course, was ridiculous when that was said in graduate school, because as you noted, people have been thinking about this for a long time. But by the 90s, when we started, you know, by 95, when we realized we had evidence that we weren't the only, I mean, everyone kind of knew, but we had evidence that we weren't the only place with planets, um, that kind of opened the door to taking astrobiology very seriously as a a kind of core thing that NASA does and rather than this kind of sort of thing out on the edge. And of course, you know, the, the, what SETI, you know, search for extraterrestrial intelligence gets cut by NASA in what the early nineties, I think. And that sort of 93 thing. actually. Yes. Yeah. We can talk more about that too, but you're right. Uh, the uh, uh, exoplanets um, um, NASA was very skeptical about exoplanets. Even uh, NASA did not fund the early exoplanet discoveries. Um, and, and only 
after some of those were discovered, did NASA really jump in in a big way, especially with the Kepler spacecraft, of course, which, which has discovered most of those planets. Yeah, I think that's you know, it's the kind of a, a theme that you see here is the sort of the institutional resistance to chance taking, to asking questions that push a little bit beyond the edge of things, and and institutions, whether universities or NASA or whatever, um, can make it really difficult to do that and and basically turn what is a a reasonable question into one that's sort of perceived as a mistake, as something that you shouldn't be asking about. And, you know, clearly you hit that in graduate school. That's right. And uh, it, you know, it, it, I was impressed by how much uh, individuals matter also within institutions, because when you talk about the history of the search for extraterrestrial intelligence, you know, there were two or three people within NASA who were interested in that and pushed it to the highest levels. And that's why there was a NASA SETI program. Um, and we can talk more about that, but uh, uh, there was not, in the end, there was not a big enough constituency across the country for that to survive. Because when it came to votes in Congress for funding for that particular program, you know, not a lot of senators would support it, even if they were interested in it, because it didn't do anything for their constituents in in that their particular uh, state, uh, except for California, where uh, the SETI program was was headquartered. And even then, it was pretty small. Uh, a pretty small amount of uh, funding. Yeah, we can never really um, ignore the fact that science is embedded in both history and politics. And, you know, what, what gets done for science is not just, gee, what scientists find interesting. Um, <laughs> for, <sure. laughs> you know, for one thing, you got to pay for it. And, and that often means government funding. And so uh, that can be, you know, certainly fickle at best. Uh, let me let me turn to the question I often ask guests about: um, Is something went wrong? Something that went wrong in your life? I mean, in a way, we we kind of touched on that in graduate school a little bit, but I guess in the end, that really went right. Um, but can you talk about something either professionally or personally that just went wrong, and then how you responded to that error? Um, you know, an example of something maybe that significantly changed your outlook on things. Well, the. Uh... I have to say the first thing that went wrong was that I couldn't get a job uh, in academia, which of course is what every graduate student wants to do, become a professor. Uh, and um, uh, jobs are very hard to come by then. And as I say, I, uh, I'd been by that time in, in uh, you know, either undergraduate or graduate school at the university for nine years. So I was determined not to stay another year. <laughs> so I began uh, applying for jobs, including uh, going into the Air Force, which had a space uh, a missile systems organization at that time, and was actually accepted into the Air Force when um, I got the uh, a call. I was almost ready to go when I got a call from the um, this mad scientist in the Princeton area to come out and do that. So that was one of those real forks in the road because if it hadn't been for that, I'd probably have had a career in the Air Force, which would have been very dif- uh, different. And uh, I'm always impressed by these forks in the road, which uh, uh, you know, which. Um, uh, affect uh, uh, the rest the rest of your life. So, but I, I think again the story there is is one of perseverance because as I say I worked uh, as a science editor uh, for this encyclopedia and then when I came to the Naval Observatory, um, uh, you know was able to make use both of the astronomy and the history of science uh, backgrounds that I had. So um, I think how I responded and how you know a good way to respond is to make the best with this, of the situation that you have. 
uh, and always keeping some goal in mind. But, um, you know, I was able at the Naval Observatory for the 20 some years that I was there to not only do astronomy, but also to um, uh, to write the history of the observatory and to participate in these various astrobiology meetings and also had a chance to uh, live in New Zealand for three years where we had a southern hemisphere station uh, on a mountaintop. So that was, uh, you know, quite an experience, too. Yeah, I think that one of the one of the things that, that you know, I see in, in what you've managed to do, and I think this is really important, uh, really, for, I think, graduate schools in general to understand is that you figured out how to take what you had done in graduate school and put the pieces together. So, you know, the different interests, the interest in the history of science, along with the, you know, the uh, background in actually doing science. And, uh, you know, unfortunately, the reality is that a lot of people who come out of graduate school aren't going to get the academic job that they want. Um, and that really means creativity. It means you got to figure out some creative ways to put the pieces together. Um, and the, the fact of the matter is, you know, uh, getting the academic job is often just a matter of luck. I, I came out at just the right time, given what I was doing, so that there were a variety of options available to me. And, and the study of Japan was really hot in the 90s because of the Japanese economy had been so big in the 80s. So there were jobs. And then all of a sudden, they all dried up because all of a sudden, China became the second largest economy over Japan. And, you know, things being the way they are, everyone went, oh, right, Japan doesn't, I mean, I literally had someone ask me once, well, why should you spend time studying Japan? And I said, well, it is the third largest economy in the world. And he said, oh, really? I didn't know that. <laughs> and that that was uh, an academic dean who said that to me at one point. And you'd think they'd know better. But, you know, it's, it's difficult coming out of graduate school and so much of it is just, is the timing right? Yeah, yeah. And, and, and luck. Um, uh, I, I mean, I did apply for academic jobs and uh, several times came in second, you know, at pretty high ranking places, but coming in second is about the same as coming in 10th. And the, the end effect is that you don't, you don't uh, have a job. So uh, again, you have to uh, be creative, as you say. So you got to NASA um, just after the Columbia disaster. And I'd like to talk a bit about that. Um, you know, NASA is this organization which, you know, we we have this image of, uh, you know, from movies like Apollo 13 where, you know, failure is not an option. And, and of course, they are a, an organization where they have to figure out how to deal with error because things don't always go right. Um, and it's an environment where the stakes are really high. And that is both in terms of life and in terms of politics. And I I wonder if you could, you know, tell us a bit about how getting things right and wrong is dealt with at NASA and how you, you know, perhaps maybe even a little bit more about how the the culture of NASA shapes that. Well, the, um, I mean, the things that immediately come to mind uh, are the, uh, the uh, Apollo accident, which uh, happened actually on the ground. We never, never had an Apollo um, uh, death in outer space although Apollo 13 came close, uh, but also uh, the two shuttle accidents, the uh, Challenger in 1986 and the Columbia in, in 2003. Um, and as you say, I came to uh, NASA in November of 2003, just a few months after the Columbia accident. So the institution was just obsessed with what they call return to flight and how to avoid that kind of accident again. Um, 
it's it's very difficult because uh, of course the first thing that happens when you have a an accident such as Challenger and you recall that's the one where they were launching I think it was January the 31st of 1986 it was extremely cold below freezing there was ice hanging all over the uh, the rocket and um, when they took off the um, at 78 seconds uh, the vehicle blew up as it was you know as it was taking off and uh, it was because the what they call the o-rings the seals between the um, you know, on the solid rockets um, had frozen and weren't able to seal properly. And so gases escaped and it, the end result was the whole thing uh, blew up. And of course, the first thing that uh, that, that NASA does is, um, you know, shut down the program and try and decide what, what the cause was. It was pretty clear in this case what the cause was. Um, but the bottom line is that um, that was what you call schedule pressure. Because I think it was uh, that very night that Reagan was supposed to give his State of the Union address and was going to say how great the NASA manned spacecraft program was. And you know, there are a lot of, there's always a lot of pressures uh, to launch. I mean, you see that recently with uh, the Artemis. You know, they really wanted to go that, that uh, first time uh, last week. Um, but they had a hydrogen leak, and hydrogen is very flammable. And uh, so they tried again and say had the same problem. And now it's probably going to be uh, mid-October before they try again. Um, and and so my friend said to me, that's kind of embarrassing, isn't it? I said, it's, yes, it's embarrassing, but it's not as embarrassing as if the thing had blown up. <laughs> so, um, yeah, there, one of the huge uh, themes uh, at NASA is risk, um, risk and, and exploration. You know, we, we want to explore but there are inevitable risks involved. I like to say uh, risk is the inevitable companion to exploration. And it's always, it's always a, uh, a difficult call on uh, things like, uh, like launches. Um, the uh, Columbia disaster was similar in the sense that they had some forewarnings. Uh, the, the Columbia disaster, you recall, in 2003 happened not on launch, but on return. Uh, and, uh, but there were things that happened on launch that kind of foreshadowed what happened. Um, this was not a cold problem so much as a problem of foam falling off of uh, what's called the external tank and hitting the shuttle wing, the left side of the wing and, um, and putting some small holes in it. Uh, it was unclear from the video exactly how big the holes were. And this had happened before and had never caused the loss of the shuttle. Um, and so they studied it and, um, in the end decided that, uh, you know, it probably was not any more of a problem than it had been before. And so they would let them, they would let them land. And, and if they hadn't let them land, you know, they could have stayed up maybe for another month and try and figure out, you know, go out and look at the wing and figure out some workaround, but there were really, wasn't much that they could have done. So the, the end there was to, uh, take the risk and and of course the whole shuttle disintegrated as it came through the atmosphere coming across coming across Texas there um, and and other uh, uh, southern states and so you always have these evaluations of, of risk and when I got to uh, when I got to uh, NASA they were uh, just convening a conference uh, on risk and exploration uh, you know with lots of experts and and of course in the wake of that, 
disaster, they had what was called the Columbia Accident Investigation Board, and all kinds of recommendations were uh, uh, were put forth. Um, and um, one of the recommendations or one of the findings was that they hadn't learned all the lessons from the previous Challenger launch either in terms of schedule pressure and, and things like that. So that leads me to the, uh, if you want to hear about the Hubble uh, incident. Um, so there were supposed to, you know, Hubble uh, is designed so that uh, it can be repaired, which is a good thing because when it first went up in 1990, <laughs> it was blurry images because they had had messed up on the testing of the mirrors. And so uh, they did go up with a first servicing mission and fix all that. So there had been four servicing missions by the time of 2003, by the time of the Columbia accident, they're about every two or three years. And uh, there was another one, servicing mission five, which was supposed to be the final one that was supposed to have been done, you know, um, in oh, 2005 or six, something like that. Um, but Columbia, with the Columbia accident, that put all of that on hold. And um, Sean O'Keefe was the administrator at that time. He was a manager, uh, not an engineer like some NASA administrators had been. And he looked at all of the CABE recommendations and decided that that fifth servicing mission could not be done. He canceled it. He canceled it. Said it was just too risky. The shuttle could go up to the International Space Station but it could not go up to Hubble, which was in a different kind of an orbit and much more or considerably more risky, different inclination, a higher orbit. Um, and uh, the Columbia Accident Investigation Board had said that uh, you have to have all these contingency plans if you're going to do that. And, and uh, O'Keefe, the administrator, decided that uh, it just wouldn't work. So um, what happened was that, of course, there was a huge uproar over that because at the by 2007 or so, the Hubble uh, Space Telescope would be dead if they didn't replace the batteries, the gyroscopes, and all these things they do when they go up for a servicing mission. But what happened was that uh, O'Keefe eventually uh, left NASA, and a new NASA administrator came in, Mike Griffin, who evaluated the risk and determined that we're going to go do it. <laughs> <laughs> and and so they did the last servicing mission, which I was there for the launch uh, down at um, Cape Kennedy, was in May of uh, 2009. Uh, and John Grensfeld, the astronaut who had done most of the servicing missions, was on that on that mission, 13 day mission, uh, achieved all of its goals, and um, the Hubble is still going today, of course. And if that call hadn't been made, if that hadn't been done. You know, all this time we would not have had a space telescope up there, at least not the kind uh, that, that, that Hubble is. So uh, that just um, goes to show you that was a great risk that, uh, that that Griffin took. And, of course, things might have turned out otherwise. You know, he's a great hero after that to the Hubble people. But if things had gone wrong and astronauts had been killed, then he wouldn't have been a great hero. So there's, there are always these these calls that have to be made in terms of how much risk uh, uh, to be taken, and it's often said that NASA is risk averse. They're accused of being risk averse. Um, so it really is a is a fine balance um, between uh, uh, safety and, um, and and risk. So it's interesting that NASA has a chief historian, and I'm curious why why is that? Why is NASA interested in 
history? Is it so that it can go back and look at its mistakes or, or, you know, what, what motivates, um, a large scientific organization like this to have an arm basically devoted to history? Right. Well, NASA knew from the beginning that it was going to be doing historic things. Um, now, that doesn't mean they would automatically uh, appoint a historian and have an, a history office, but there were people from the outside who pushed this point to the extent, uh, you know, to the high level management, to the extent that they did establish a history office. And so NASA has had a history office virtually from the beginning in 19, of NASA in 1958. And there have been uh, six NASA chief historians uh, since then, including myself. Um, and for, for a variety of reasons, uh, one of them is to help learn lessons. Uh, in fact, that um, whole Hubble incident that I was just telling you about, the administrator, O'Keefe, who made that uh, decision, um, gave me the assignment of writing up and documenting exactly how he made that decision. And that meant interviewing everybody involved from him uh, you know, from the administrator to everybody on down, the John Gunsfeld and the space science people and the engineers. And so I did that and um, uh, wrote that up. And that's actually published in the Space, Time and Aliens book. Um, but, you know, NASA uh, did want to le- does want to learn from from its past experiences. Um, and so uh, that's one of the aspects of having a NASA history office. But there are many many uh, other reasons. Uh, you know, the public is interested in history and the NASA History Office includes a huge archive. Some of the archives are in the National Archives, but the NASA History Office at headquarters in Washington, D.C. has um, a head, uh, has a, an archive. And some of the 10 NASA centers, like Johnson Space Center, also have their own archives and their own history programs, which are all tied together, you know, through the NASA Chief Historian. And so uh, archives is a big part of it and answering queries, not only from the general public, but from uh, the, uh, the media. Um, and that archives also services, uh, you know, many scholars who come to do research on, on NASA history. So you have, you know, the kind of studies that um, O'Keefe commissioned. You have uh, archives. Uh, you also have um, uh, conferences. Uh, the NASA History Office does all kinds of conferences. So, for example, on the 50th anniversary of NASA, we did one. Uh, on the 50th anniversary of the space age, we did one. We did one on critical issues in the history of space flight, which, again, I think had many lessons that were useful to NASA. Uh, and uh, another aspect of it is the book program. We commission lots of histories um, on, on various programs and aspects of, uh, of NASA history. And we actually pay, you know, uh, professional historians to do this work over a period of two or three years on any particular project. So uh, there's there's always a lot uh, going on in in the NASA history office. So when I left, I think I had uh, I left uh, in 2009. I had about 30 or 40 book projects going, <laughs> some of which are still some of which are still in the work in the works. Um, but one thing that I pushed while I was there was not only the nuts and bolts history, you know. NASA uh, had published a lot of books on, you know, the the F five engines on the Saturn V or something like that. I pushed um, things like the societal impact of spaceflight. We did several volumes on that, and also the role of exploration in society and NASA's role in in, uh, in that. So it's a very broad, um, very broad um, 
portfolio that the NASA History Office has. And it's not always easy, I have to say, because, uh, of course, NASA wants to hear like or likes to hear good things, you know, and they have a huge uh, public affairs office. And sometimes uh, they tend to confuse history with public affairs. And of course, historians want to write objective history. And there's sometimes some pushback against that, uh, despite the desire to have lessons learned. Um, and so uh, it's always a, it's always a struggle sometimes to uh, to write uh, objective history, but that's the foundation for the history program has been from the beginning and uh, and and still is even though it's a struggle sometimes. Yeah, one of the things that I've thought about is that you know as a historian of science and and you know working in the context of a place that that does science and engineering. Uh, it's almost like living inside Thomas Kuhn's The Structure of Scientific Revolutions. You know, it's, uh, um, he, you know, he very clearly notes that there's this, of course, intersection of the fact that you have humans doing science. So you've got egos that are in the process of doing science. And, you know, that shapes how things play out in the scientific community. Uh, but, you know, it's also interesting, as you were talking, it, it strikes me that, and this is something I think that many in the sort of science denial world seem to fail to understand, that science also tends to have built in reflexivity in which it thinks about what it's doing. And, and there's this constant process of critique, even if people are, are resistant to that at times, because, of course, being critiqued is not fun. Um, but there is this kind of natural structure there that keeps going back and asks, or is this the right way to look at things? Or did we get this wrong? And I'm wondering, you know, if, if the, how maybe that process has changed, have you seen intensification uh, of, you know, kind of the role that egos play, or maybe less of that, um, you know, since you started getting involved in this? Right. Uh, well, of course, uh, Thomas Kuhn, you know, in the structure of scientific revolutions, is uh, you know is famous for talking about paradigms uh, versus normal science. In other words, most of science is normal science. You're plugging along, getting data, and then you have a big revolution, scientific revolution. Um, in in both of my uh, jobs uh, in the federal government, uh, I've seen that uh, both sides of it because uh, the Naval Observatory, you know, is a very practical organization. It's funded by the Navy, and not to do esoteric things, but for practical purposes. Uh, so the, the Naval Observatory, uh, you know, we do uh, observations of star positions for navigation and we do the uh, Nautical Almanac uh, for, uh, for navigation. Uh, we do um, time, you know, time signals um, down to they keep and keep the time to down, a, a billionth of a second per day, something like that. And the Naval Observatory is the sole uh, source of time for the GPS satellites. So every time you're using GPS you know, in your car or wherever, that goes back to a time, the time kept to a few billionths of a second at, at the Naval Observatory. But that, that all is um, uh, sort of in the, in the area of normal science. You're sort of plugging away, getting the data, making sure, you know, the GPS has its proper signal and, and all of that, which is quite different from uh, what NASA does, uh, which is more or can be can be uh, revolutionary with the uh, you know the many different satellites that they have, um, some of which make discoveries that are uh, you know more or less earth shaking. Even the Hubble, um, you know, some of the observations of the of the age of the universe and the expansion rate of the universe, those 
approach more revolutionary uh, science. Um, so those are two quite different kinds of science, but I think you I think you need both. And as for the uh, the egos in science, um, this reminds me of of the whole uh, movement of postmodernism, uh, you know, which means many things to many people. Um, but one of the things it means to some people is that science is no different from theology or philosophy or you know other other areas of thought, uh, which gets to your point uh, that uh, I think science is somewhat different because it's grounded in nature. Um, and I've always thought that postmodernism is is um, obvious on the one hand in that respect and absurd on the other hand. It's obvious in in the fact that you know, as I found out being a part of scientific institutions, scientists are very human, <laughs> make mistakes all the time, uh, and egos are, are involved. Um, but uh, they do have, in the end, this grounding uh, in nature, which is different from, you know, philosophy or theology, where you can argue one side or the other, and, and nobody's really right, because uh, there's no there's no real real grounding in it. Um, and as for that, how, how much that has changed over the years, um, I think uh, science, um, you know, is, is really under attack these days. And that's because some people don't understand, you know, what science is all about. There are lots of mistakes, even in the, you know, in the, in the area of, uh, of health with uh, Dr. Fauci and all that. You know, they're doing the best they can uh, with what they know. And sometimes they make mistakes, but then you always go back and correct as soon as you 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 know more. And that's what that's what uh, science is all about. It's not that they're always right, but they're they're looking for what <laughs> the right answer is. Right. Yeah. yeah, I think one of the the you know profound problems we're facing is that people don't really understand how science works. That it's really not a process of finding the truth; it's a process of falsifying the things that we think we know at a given point in time. And, but it's always changing because we're always learning more things. And as you learn more things, you realize what you thought you knew is sometimes just wrong, but sometimes it's also limited. You realize it isn't as extensive as you thought. And I don't think the general public in the United States understands that very well. Yeah, I think you're right. And I think that's why we have some of the, some of the uh, big problems that we have today. Yeah, yeah. Um, which I, kind of brings me to a you know question that I, has been one of the the themes of of this podcast series, and we, we've been very focused on the idea of trying to understand the idea of in, what we're calling what I've been calling intellectual humility. And I'm curious if you could offer some thoughts about this. How would you define intellectual humility as both a historian and as a, a scientist? And and how do you think it plays out in NASA? Um, you know, are, are there aspects in which there's a lack of intellectual humility that influences things at NASA or elsewhere, maybe more broadly in the astrobiology community? Um, you know, what what happens? How does how does that concept play a role, do you think? Yeah, good question. Well, I would say in terms of defining humility, it's, uh, you know, the fact that we, we may not know as much as we think we know. Uh, and uh, if, if you start with astrobiology, that's uh, that's very obvious because we're looking for, you know, SETI, the search for extraterrestrial intelligence, looking for aliens. And the first thing you do, of course, or the first thing you think is that, well, they must be just like us. So let's <laughs> figure out, uh, you know, how to find them. Um, 
and uh, of course, uh, you know, our concepts of intelligence and technology and communication may be totally alien to to uh, to aliens. Uh, so um, the ways we are looking uh, for aliens may not may not be working at all. Um, and you know the for example the uh, well you can understand why SETI people are doing what they're doing in terms of they started out with radio telescopes they start out with what they know how to do uh, but then you could ask the question um, you know if you think in a more uh, or a less anthropocentric way what uh, uh, you know what are the other possibilities one of the ones I've written about is maybe the aliens aren't biologicals at all. Maybe they're post-biologicals. Maybe they're artificial intelligence. What does that do to your search for extraterrestrial intelligence? Well, nobody's thought about that very much because they're, you know, uh, thinking that they're going to be uh, uh, more like us. And the same thing with uh, technology. We don't know if they have radio telescopes or, or, um, or communication, how they might communicate and if we can even communicate with them. Uh, and it's the same thing. So that's at the study level at the, at the lower level of finding microbes, you see the same thing, though. You have to make assumptions about what you're looking for, like the Viking landers on Mars or the Curiosity or whatever the current ones are uh, that are up there, that they, uh, you know, what experiments are going to do to look for life um, based on what we now know about life. But uh, life up there may not be <laughs> what we think it is. So uh, you really do need to have some intellectual humility, but it has to also be balanced with practicalities of being able to build, uh, being able to build uh, an experiment that, uh, you know, that could work if, if like is like us. Yeah. I've always thought with SETI that there's this kind of difficult in some ways, unfortunate contradiction on the one hand, um, the assumptions that we start with could just be utterly wrong because we only have one data point earth. On the other hand, we only have one data point, so what other assumptions can we make? It's 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 kind of a catch twenty two, in terms of we do have to be willing to um, I think shed our assumptions, but then how do we go about looking for this possibility of intelligence or even just you know microbial life somewhere else? Because we haven't found anything else, and so <laughs> we're kind of stuck. Yeah, um, I, I tried to address this in one of my books, uh, recent books. Uh, on astrobiology, a discovery and societal impact, where I have a chapter on um, how, how can you try and be less anthropocentric? How can you get out of your head? And of course, the problem is you can't get out of your head. You can, <laughs> you can try and think of alternatives, but you can't totally uh, get out of your head. And this you know, goes into uh, a lot of philosophy too, like uh, Immanuel Kant said that the universe is what, <laughs> what it is because of our brain structure and it may not be like that at all. Um, so, uh, it's, it's a problem. And all we can try and do is, uh, is work around it in, in all these, uh, different areas, but you can't entirely work around it. So, um, we have to keep doing, I think what we're doing, but recently, you know, there's been a lot of talk about techno signatures, which is much broader than the radio search. Um, and part of this has been brought about by this, interstellar asteroid that came through the solar system a few years ago. I think it's actually just this year sort of departing the outer solar system. Uh, the asteroid dubbed Oumuamua, which had some strange motions to the extent that uh, this Abby Loeb, who was the chair of the astronomy department at Harvard, so, you know, no, no slouch, uh, wrote an entire book 
arguing how this could have been uh, an artifact from an, an, an extraterrestrial civilization. Uh, and that's given rise to, <clears throat> to um, you know, the broader area of technosignatures and what, how you might search for artifacts, uh, you know, throughout the solar system or bigger artifacts, you know, around stars like Dyson spheres, these things that, you know, could capture the heat infrared uh, radiation uh, from a star. And even to the extent that uh, Abby Loeb now has uh, this thing called Project Galileo, uh, I mean, the ultimate artifact would be a UFO, right? Or what they call UAPs these days, Unidentified Aerial Phenomena. So uh, Loeb has gathered a group of people who are systematically trying to scientifically uh, look at the, uh, uh, the evidence uh, for UFOs. And of course, this has raised a lot of eyebrows because uh, the UFO debate has a a long history of not having reputable people in, but it also has a long history of science not taking it uh, seriously. Yeah. And uh, my take on that has always been, you know, 90, I think it's 97% of all sightings can be explained one way or another. But what about those other 3%? Um, you know, maybe that is something unusual going on. It could be some physical phenomenon we don't understand. But um, uh, to jump to the extraterrestrial hypothesis, that's, that's another level. Um, and you'd have to have, uh, well, as, as Sagan always said, extraordinary claims require extraordinary evidence. And, uh, you know, even with the recent, uh, you know, the Navy sightings and, and, and the, you know, the, even NASA has got involved recently in a small kind of a way to look at, at some of this. Uh, the evidence still, to me, doesn't seem extraordinary. You still see <clears throat> these blurry pictures, even if they're taken from a Navy jet. But it, you, you can't jump from that to saying it's a, uh, it's an extraterrestrial, even though they say, well, it's, it's, you know, it's moving in ways that only, uh, you know, we don't, you, you can't understand the physics, uh, uh, the way it's moving, but you know, there, there are ways to get around that too, with bad sensors and, you know, how far away is this thing? If it's closer, it seemed to be moving a lot faster than it really is. And, and, and that sort of thing. So I haven't seen the extraordinary evidence there yet. Yeah, I think uh, one of the most important components of intellectual humility is is always adhering to Occam's razor. You, you don't don't come up with explanations that require leaps. You know, it's, I, I tell my students, I say, you know, if if you're sitting in a bar in the center of Austin sometime and you're hear hear hoofbeats go by, assume it's horses. Don't think it's zebras because it's most likely not zebras. It's not impossible. It could be that there was a shipment of zebras going to the zoo and they crashed and there are zebras now running through the center of Austin. <laughs> but it's not very likely. Right, <laughs> so, right. Some people, you know, there are a few scientists who do that. They throw out a hundred wild, uh, wild proposals and, you know, one of them might be right. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Well, you know, I think Loeb has has done an interesting thing because, I mean, first of all, you know, his raising the idea of that that asteroid that I can never pronounce properly um, actually being, you know, some sort of alien tech, he never said it was. He raised the idea that this would be one interesting way to explain this. And, of course, people immediately jumped on it and said, oh, Harvard astronomer is saying that aliens have visited our solar system. He never said that. And, and the book becomes a bestseller, too, based on the media hype. <laughs> right, which is probably good for his bank account. So, um, <laughs> but, uh, but the thing is that, you know, it's so easy for those things to get twisted from a, a very reasonable question. He asked a reasonable question. 
and and then it gets kind of blown out of proportion and you know but if you start thinking about you know for example your your point about well what if aliens are post biological well then the huge time differences maybe become you know the time it takes to get from planet x to earth becomes much less of an issue than it would for biological beings because we just can't live that long but a machine right, can right. and and you know there are all kinds of things you would have to consider some of which don't necessarily make the search easier because if you're a post-biological artificial intelligence, you don't have to be on a nice warm planet around a sun-like star. You can be anywhere, <laughs> which, you know, but, but how, do you, how do you search then? So, but these are things that haven't really been, been thought about. And, uh, and if you do find one, how do you communicate with an artificial intelligence? Well, that gets into a whole interesting area of AI and can, is there a general artificial intelligence uh, uh, you know, and some people think that we're going to be post-biological, you know, Moravec and Ray Kurzweil and these people on Earth, on Earth within a few generations, which is, um, you know, optimistic or pessimistic, however you think about it. But uh, you remember the, the, the reason I'm interested in it because you think about the time scales of the universe. The universe is 13.8 billion years old. Uh, there could be intelligence out there billions of years before us. And how would they... How would they evolve? Well, they could evolve in all kinds of different ways, um, but, but one of the most fundamental would be in their intelligence. And you can argue that artificial intelligence would be, you know, one direction um, that would be beneficial in a Darwinian sense and leave the others behind. So um, I think, you know, given what we know about the universe and those kinds of considerations, that it's not a uh, too far out to dis- to discuss at least. I think so, and and of course, then it also places us in this sort of odd position of asking the question, well, would that post-biological intelligence even recognize us as intelligent? It, 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 it's not that it would necessarily see us as not intelligent. It may just not recognize us as beings capable of intelligence. And so it, it, it winds up being really complex. And, um, and if they which, could recognize us, would they even care about us? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. They might just go, Oh yeah, they're kind of interesting. Let's move on, you know, <laughs> from an anthropological point of view, right? Right. You yeah. know, and, but that, I think in some ways that gets back to, you know, so one of the problems of intellectual humility is that you do see in SETI and in astrobiology, a kind of almost a sense that, that particularly when it comes to the intelligence side of, of looking at things, that humans ought to be somehow inherently of interest to other beings that are intelligent because we're intelligent. And there is no good reason to think that's the case. Um, you know, they might just find us ridiculous. Who knows? Um, so, well, let me ask, um, you know, we've, we've covered a lot of different uh, areas. And, and is there anything you'd like to add that we haven't covered about this topic? Well, I, I just wanted to say that I've listened to some of your other bro- uh, podcasts, and um, uh, I was particularly struck with one with the uh, science fiction writer, uh, uh, Doug Richards, I think was his name, uh, which resonated with me because he talked a lot about how difficult it was for him to get published, uh, his, his science fiction uh, uh, to get published. And uh, I think that's a very, very common, almost any author you talk to who will tell you about. And it was the same with my uh, dissertation, which you know I shopped out to um, uh, probably a dozen publishers and rejected by 11 of them, but the 12th one was Cambridge University Press. And again, talk about happenstance or, or luck. I mean, the, uh, the, the commissioning editor there just happened to be interested in the subject. 
And so if you can find that, uh, you know, you've got an in. And um, and once you're in, you know, at least in the in the university press uh, sense, you, you can publish even more with them. So I've published seven books with Cambridge University Press. And I've never been able, uh, unfortunately, like uh, Douglas Richards, to break into the commercial um, part because, as he said, I think, um, the first thing you need is an agent. You can't get to the publisher directly these days. You've got to go through an agent. And um, I've never had any luck with that. So, Yeah, that's actually a, a very, very difficult. Um, I've, I've gone through the same process. And um, the the it, it's a very interesting thing that when you when you land once in academic publishing, that same press is going to be interested in your work in the future. I had the same thing with State University of New York Press and, you know, pretty much could send a proposal and they'd say, yep, we're interested. And I move on and write the book and it gets reviewed and all that. The, the process of breaking into the, the uh, writing for the general public is just really, really difficult to do because there are these gatekeepers, these agents are gatekeepers. And it's very much, I think, tied to kind of the whims of what they're interested in, rather than necessarily to the quality of the work that's being done. And, you know, I think uh, Doug, you know, kind of realized that, that you know, he turned and went the direction of, of basically self-publishing. And um, I actually just read this morning on Facebook that his latest novel is number one in uh, forthcoming, you know, uh, books on uh, Amazon. And he figured out how to kind of work with that problem and, and, you know, develop a different way to approach it. But it's, it's very, very difficult. The publishing world has just filled with gatekeepers that are not necessarily driven by quality. <laughs> That's right. I've read some of uh, Doug's uh, science fiction novels and, and they're very good. So it's too bad he couldn't break into the, into the commercial publishers, at least not until he <laughs> put it out there on his own. Um, and, you know, uh, speaking of uh, science fiction, uh, I have to say that uh, science fiction affected very many of the people at NASA when I, when I was there. And everybody would talk about, uh, you know, their favorite science fiction authors. So science fiction um, plays a role in reality, too. Oh, I think it plays an enormous role. I, I think um, people are, of all the different parts of literature, I think right now science fiction is probably having, in some ways, the biggest influence because it, it changes the way we see things, you know, even, um, you know, if you think about the way we think about our solar system and, you know, um, if you go back and think about, you know, in the sixties, the moon was really far away. We now think of it as right there. And part of that's because we went there, but part of that's because there's a lot of science fiction that has generated the sense that the moon is right next door and it's not far away. And really, our whole concept of, of our neighborhood, the solar system as a whole, has changed in my lifetime. Um, and I think that's a combination of, of the, the science being done and the science fiction that's sort of spinning that process. Yeah, I think you're right. And I think uh, I find that when I get stuck on something, to read science fiction really opens your mind again you know, to, to new ideas. Um, in fact, I've, I'd, I'd like to write some science fiction myself, but... Uh, it's very different from, you know, the the, uh, the nonfiction that I've done before because uh, what I'm used to doing is putting uh, ten footnotes at the bottom of every page. You can't do that in science fiction. <laughs> I, I will tell you, it's 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 uh, kind of liberating to move away from academic writing. In that, um, uh, a year ago during the pandemic stuff, I sat down and decided to write a mystery novel, 
And um, but I wanted to do something different. It's 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 an ethnographic mystery novel, so it draws on real play a real place in Japan where I've lived, and all of the description is very much the real place. It's just the story that's different, um, and it it was a very interesting project to try to write fiction and not have to, it was actually somewhat liberating not to have to worry about citing things all the time. Um, I could just write what I know. Um, and it's, you know, it's actually, it's worked out. It's been used in a couple of classes and the students seem to resonate with it because it's not, you know, eggheads writing about things in complicated ways. They can actually access what's going on. Um, but But I think you still have to have a, um, certain innate ability to write that kind of thing. I remember uh, uh, talking to Ben Bova, you know, Ben Bova years ago, one of the great science fiction writers. And I, I said to him, uh, it must be nice to write fiction because you must be easier. You don't have to do footnotes or, you know, you don't even have to be right about anything. And he said, oh, no, well, he's a he's a um, more of a hard science fiction guy. So he wanted to get things as realistic as, as possible. But uh he said it's not easy, and I think he's right. <laughs> yeah, I, I think it, it's yeah, and and then you kind of add another layer on it. So this is like one person who wrote, you know, I, I got a, there were a lot of reviews on Goodreads and that sort of thing. One person said that that the um, some of the dialogue was kind of stilted, and I wouldn't really disagree with that. But it was a really difficult thing because the main characters and anthropologists and academics tend to speak in stilted ways, right. <laughs> and so it was it's realistic, right? <laughs> right, and, and you know, so it's like it's really difficult to kind of know how to do that, and and of course, it's another whole skill set, and so um, it was it was it was a very interesting process to learn, and and we'll see where it goes in the future. But well, maybe I'll try it again. That sounds good. I hope so. Well, Steve, I want to thank you so much for being on the podcast. It's been a real pleasure. I think we had a really interesting conversation. And, um, you know, hopefully folks out there will learn a lot about NASA and astronomy and all sorts of interesting things. Okay. Uh, Thanks very much. Uh, I think this is a great podcast that you're doing. So keep up good work.